Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The morning of Friday the 17th of April 1936 was deathly still as a damp fog hung. Drenched in sombre silence, a small crowd bowed their heads as down the staircase and through the street door of 47 Lexington Street, two men in mournful suits carried a black wooden coffin into the back of a black waiting van. Word had quickly spread across Soho that Jean-Marie Cotton had been murdered. Strangled in her own flat with her own scarf in a motiveless attack by an unknown killer. Fueling the fire. That day, Marie's murder was headline news in many national newspapers. Hastily recycling any salacious tidbits, whether fact or false, to get the scoop. Many like the Daily Mail and the Leicester Evening Mail both went with Beautiful Woman Murdered in Soho. As it's faster and cheaper to copy and paste from a press release than it is to dispatch a reporter to do their job. And having already connected a few of the dots, the Nottingham Evening Post went with Second beauty, slain in London. The story of French Fifi was as dead and buried as her body. But now, they had a reason to remember her. New flat riddle for Scotland Yard. Is there a link with stocking crime? Both victims strangled and French. Overnight, the unremarkable deaths of two forgotten women had gained notoriety. But only because their murders had sex, death, mystery, and a faceless killer who stalked the shadows. Focused on speed rather than accuracy, the press bastardized the facts. Fingerprints of killer found at murder only they actually belonged to the first PC on the scene. Police took away blood-stained door 
which was wrong, as the pool of blood about her nose hadn't splashed nor spread. And fourteen pounds found in cupboard, which was entirely false, as according to Carlo, nothing was missing, not even a penny. The very next day, the Evening Standard quoted Superintendent Walter Hambrook as stating, This case cannot be associated with the ordinary class of murder, which in the minds of the newspapers and its readers put the deaths of Marie Cotton and French Fifi upon a pedestal. The problem was, he never said those words. But if you print it, it becomes fact. And the more you repeat it, it becomes proof. The death of Marie Cotton would have been as unremarkable as it was forgotten. And yet as gossip brewed, a myth about a strangler in Soho began to stir. as the word murder rippled with unstoppable speed about the West End. As often happens, theories as to the culprit spread, and the usual bigoted band of society's villains were blamed, like gays, Jews, foreigners, bohemians, the insane and the disabled, with those always choosing to believe it was them and never us. Every witness had a theory as to who had done it. But just like the crime scene, the police were methodical. Although Josephine Pulican would state, I feel certain she was murdered by Mr. Lanza. He is a brute and often kicked Madame Cotton, as did Remo. Carlo Lanza was seen by many reliable independent witnesses at his place of work during the hours she died. As was Remo, his son, who found the body. As well as Dintis, her lover, who Dorothy described as a dangerous man. His movements were accounted for. Last seen alive by her lodger, Dorothy Neary, who was having sex in her room a few feet away with her Jewish boyfriend when Marie was murdered. Neither were suspected as culprits. And as her ex-husband was dead, and the mysterious Mr. Cohen could not be proven to have ever existed, the police toyed with other theories, such as chance encounter, a secret in her past, a failed burglary, or that living on the same floor as a Soho prostitute. That her death was a case of mistaken identity. All of these theories were examined, but dismissed. As the police had a prime suspect.
It's hard to pin down who he was, as he riddled his life with so many lies. To some he was from Yorkshire, but to others he said he was from Norfolk. He said he was an orphan, only his mum was still alive and his dad had only just died. And although many called him Jimmy, Graham and even Peter Graham, three aliases he was known to use to hide his crimes. His real name was James Allen Hall. Born in 1907 in Shelton, a parish 12 miles south of Norwich. His father was an innkeeper. His mother was a housewife. He had one older sister called Dora. And to keep the coffers coming in, a lodger. Branded as unruly and selfish, what sparked his aggression is unknown. As although educated, he would stumble into petty thievery to fund a lifestyle of drink, fashion, and sexual experimentation. On an unknown date in the late 1920s, James married May, making her Mrs. May Janet Hall. How they met and why they wed is a mystery, as with misery pervading their home, he only married her to hide the truth. And drinking heavily, he often assaulted her. In 1931, May applied for a divorce. But before her solicitors could issue him with the papers, he had already fled to London. Being on the run, James worked as an assistant clerk to his father, at the Southgate Burial Board in North London, processing monies for plots and gravestones of the recently bereaved. In early 1933, he had fraudulently cashed two cheques totaling £59, or £4,500 today. As was his habit when things got hot. Before he could be arrested, he fled leaving his widowed mother to fend for herself. He hunkered down in lodging houses. He hid under aliases. He racked up debts. And being booted out for misbehavior, lewd acts and drunkenness, he always left a trail of destruction. Drink. Sex violence, and money. Four words which were hardly the calling card of the Soho Strangler. A killer so calm and controlled that he never left a single witness nor piece of evidence as to his identity. But then again, maybe as a fledgling killer finding his feet. His lack of capture was as much down to luck as it was to his cunning. In the spring of 1935, James worked as a clerk at Denard Manufacturing, 
a gown manufacturer at 65 Margaret Street in nearby Fitzrovia. On the 3rd of October 1935, having interviewed 20 applicants for an intern role, with all being young, slim boys, he hired 18-year-old Donald Ross, the one he fancied most. Donald would state, I wasn't corrupted until I met Hall. Staying at James's lodging at the Trafalgar at 37 Craven Terrace, I agreed to stay and slept with him in one bed. He did not attempt to interfere with me, Donald would state. But with the landlady objecting to two men sharing a bed, James went in search of a new lodging. On the 15th of November 1935, James spotted an advert in a newsagent's window. Single room, £1.7 shillings a week, plus room cleaned and sheets washed. Jay Lanza, 47 Lexington Street. It was affordable, discreet, and with Soho having a long history of tolerance towards homosexuals, this could be their little love nest. Moving in the next day, the small front room was furnished with a dresser, a table, a bucket as a toilet, and a thick double mattress with fresh bedsheets every two weeks. For the money, it was comfortable. And although they had to share a bathroom, Donald would state, we did not get food in the house, as they had no access to the landlady's kitchen. According to those who were there, James Hall, the lodger, got on well with Jean-Marie Cotton, the landlady. She was quiet and didn't bother them. He paid on time and rarely spoke to her. Donald would state, I never heard him have any quarrels with her, nor did I hear him ever threaten her in any way. As a moral woman who didn't like his immoral ways, in private to Dorothy, she would openly call them Nancy boys. Just as in private to Donald, he would lambast her as the bitch on Lexington Street. It was no secret that they weren't on friendly terms. But that was hardly a solid motive to murder her. As suspects go, compared to Carlo, her violent partner, Dintis, her absconding lover, or the mysterious Mr. Cohen, a man so threatening that he had made her physically shake, James Hall hardly fits the bill. He could be the Soho Strangler, given that he lived near or with each victim, although others did too. Given that he had a history of violence against women, but only against his wife, and given that he used aliases and short-term lodgings, and yet who wouldn't if they were on the run for check fraud?
If he was the Soho Strangler, maybe these murders were merely failed robberies. Maybe he did them in a drunken haze. Maybe he had a split personality. Maybe they weren't sexually assaulted as James was gay. Or maybe it's just a coincidence that both victims were small, mid-40s French brunettes. James was the most unlikely suspect in the search for the Soho Strangler. He wasn't a punter, a pimp, a ponce, a white slaver, a gang member, a foreigner, a stranger, or as the press's chief suspect, a Jew. And yet, the police hadn't got it wrong. They weren't searching for a serial strangler stalking Soho sex workers. They were simply seeking the most likely suspect in the murder of John Marie Cotton. And that was James Allen Hall. James was a despicable man. A violent drunk. A selfish thug and the kind of callous thief who had no qualms about stealing funeral funds from bereaved widows. And as the police would suspect, an arrogant man who could take the life of an innocent person over something entirely pointless and trivial. Barely any of which made it into the press as being gay an outcast who was blamed for corrupting society. His real crime was his sexuality. As every reported detail of his life was tagged with the words lewd, depraved, sick and disgusting. Although if you were to ask French Fifi and Marie Cotton what deeds their staunchly heterosexual partners or punters did to them, I'm sure foul would be a fine word. Sadly, this is a reflection of the era, as the police investigation also focused heavily on James's sexual activities. Even though the Soho Strangler killings of both Fifi and Marie had no sexual motive. When 18-year-old Donald Ross was interviewed about his relationship with 28-year-old James Hall, the police flagged up buggery, masturbation, and added, there is an abundance of evidence to prove that Hall is a sodomite. A few days after they moved in, James invited a kilted soldier back to the room. Donald would state, I saw them both in bed. Hall said to me, I have brought a lady home tonight for a treat. The kilted soldier was naked. I saw Hall and the soldier holding and rubbing each other's persons. He had an unnatural connection with me up my back passage about half a dozen times. It may not seem likely that James Hall was the Soho Strangler but regarded as a deviant. It took no leap for society to assume 
that any gay sadist had an appetite for strangulation, even of women. So putting the Soho Strangler aside for a second, was James Hall a killer? Or as Marie's murder had no other suspects, Fifi's had gone unsolved. And with the press's readers feverishly baying for blood, had the police simply bagged themselves a very convenient scapegoat? A few days before the 30th of January 1936, while Marie was cleaning James's room, she spotted stains on the bed caused by excretia, semen and Vaseline. Not wanting to cause any fuss, she left a note. Donald would state, Mrs. Lanza spoke to me about this matter. She was not upset with me, and as far as I know, she was not unpleasant to Mr. Hall. Dates vary, but on Saturday the 8th of February, James quit the lodging. And as a very literal dirty protest against his landlady's perceived intolerance, with her nose wrinkling in disgust each time he called his boy, darling or sweetheart, James took the half-full bucket of pea and plop and tipped it over the fresh sheets. Angry and disgusted, she didn't want to fight or to take it any further. What she wanted was the two pound and ten shillings as a rightful compensation for damages. Aided by her new lodger, Dorothy Neary, on Tuesday the 17th of March 1936 at 6pm, Marie ascended the stairs to the third floor of 65 Margaret Street in Fitzrovia, where James worked at Denard Manufacturing. As the office was shut, she slipped a little note under the door, which he later stated, annoyed me. Hoping to resolve it amicably, they communicated by letter. But as James had no intention of paying, treating her request with absolute disdain, it soon became a game of cat and mouse. Thursday the 19th of March, James wrote, Dear Madam, I'm sorry I was not able to call. But business made this impossible. As regards this evening, I already have made plans. Perhaps you could call me tomorrow night at 6pm, when I shall be in. But to call before that time will be of no use, as I shall be out on business. Hoping this will be convenient, yours faithfully, J. Hall. She called, but he was out. Saturday the 21st of March Dear Madam, if you let me know the amount, I will see what I can do in the next few days. I enclose an envelope for your reply, 
as it is useless to keep calling me. As soon as I hear from you, I will give this matter my immediate attention. Yours faithfully, J. Hall. She did, only he didn't. Sunday the 22nd of March, Marie replied, Dear Mr. Hall, owing to your own arrangements, I have lost two evenings of work. I shall not waste any more time over this matter. And having already threatened to take it further, on Thursday the 26th of March, she wrote, Dear Mr. Hall, seeing you have not kept your word, will you kindly call and see me as soon as you can? If not, I shall take it to court. For anyone else, a soiled mattress would amount to a minor misdemeanor and a paltry fine. But as he was on the run from one set of solicitors seeking to issue him a divorce petition for violent conduct and a second set for the criminal charge of embezzlement, any court action risked his imminent arrest. Unwisely, Having chosen to pay her nothing, on Thursday the 9th of April, the same day that Marie was shaken by the fear of the mysterious Jew who hunted her, known only as Mr. Cohen, Marie and Dorothy handed in an application for the summons of James Allen Hall, a Great Marlborough Street police court. Thursday the 16th of April 1936 was Marie Cotton's last day alive. From 7am onwards, she was seen by several witnesses having an unremarkable day. With her last seen at 5.15pm, when Dorothy took a bath and left Marie washing and cleaning in her unlocked kitchen. From 9pm till 5pm, James would state that he was at work. Her time of death was between 5.30 and 7.30pm, but no one saw him on Lexington Street at all that night, and yet he was never more than a few streets away. At 6.40pm, Leonard Thays met James at the Angel and Crown pub on Warwick Street in St. James's. And from that point onwards, he was seen in several pubs until he returned to his lodgings at the Trafalgar. Those who drank with him said he seemed his normal self, not upset, disheveled, fearful or anxious. There was nothing suspicious about James's actions on the day of the murder. And yet the following day smacks of a man living in fear. The morning of Friday the 17th of April 1936 was deathly still as a damp fog hung low 
and an excitable crowd hung their head in silence. A small black coffin was mournfully carried into the back of a black van. At about the same time, James opened the doors of Denard Manufacturing before anyone was even in and wrote himself four cheques, all in the name of his employer, totaling 13 pounds, 14 shillings and sixpence, almost 1,100 pounds today. With the cheques cashed, James fled. His employer was alerted. CID issued his description. Posters were put up seeking a ruddy-faced 28-year-old wanted for fraud. And having found Leonard Thays in his list of known associates, as James had written to him whilst he was serving in Wandsworth Prison. On the 24th of April, James was tracked down to the Sutherland Public House on Vigo Street and was arrested. But did he flee because of the court summonses or because he was guilty of murder? On the 29th of June, 1936, James Allen Hall was tried at the Old Bailey. Found guilty, he was sentenced to 12 months hard labour for six counts of embezzlement. Delayed for three months, the inquest into the death of Jean-Marie Cotton was resumed on the 9th of June 1936 at Westminster Coroner's Court. With her cause of death certified as ligature strangulation, Dr. John Taylor, the pathologist, stated, Strangulation could not have been self-inflicted. With police divisional surgeon, Dr. Charles Burney, confirming, There is no suggestion of her having been hanged. Police had identified two indentations on the side of the bed and cigarette ash, which pointed strongly to someone having entered the flat who knew her. But with no fingerprints, no witnesses, no clues, and no confession by the police's prime suspect. Although Superintendent Hambrook would state, Hall gave a most unfavourable impression in the mind of the jury. Nothing, however, is capable of proof against anybody so far as murder is concerned. And the crime is a complete mystery. The coroner, Mr. Ingleby Oddy, would conclude, the only person whom it may be said had a grievance against her is Hall. His grievance against her is not a very serious one. And hers against him is not a very grave one. That provides a very inadequate motive. And with the evidence slim and circumstantial, the inquest was closed, James was dismissed, and the death of Jean-Marie Cotton was listed as murder by person or persons unknown.
with two women murdered over five months across a few streets in Soho and with no clear motive or suspects. The police were at a loss as many accused them of grasping at straws. With no answers to the question, how safe are we? A panic began to spread. As the sinister idea of a serial killer stalking Soho's streets had been planted in the eye of the public, the press and its readers. In its day, Jack the Ripper was not an instant sensation, as some of his early victims were dismissed as merely unremarkable events or one-off incidents of fallen women, many of whom would be forgotten. And yet all it took to create a sensation was a panic, another murder, and a name for the pieces to be put together. Three streets east, and three weeks after the murder of Marie Cotton, the Soho Strangler would strike again. This time, another prostitute in Soho strangled to death by an unseen stranger in her own bed. But whereas, although the deaths of Fifi and Marie were initially mistaken as a suicide and an accident, owing to how serene the crime scene had seemed, this next attack could not be confused with anything but a horrifying murder, as the walls, the floor and the door would be saturated and dripping in his victim's blood. Had the killer lost his usual cool and composure? Had his mania given him a taste for blood? Or with the press having almost ignored his two previous murders, did this serial killer crave a public's attention? By May 1936, only one man was on the people's lips, and his name was the Soho Strangler. Part 5 of 10 of the Soho Strangler continues next week. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Oh, how was that one? Was that okay? That wasn't terrible. Wasn't terrible. Okay. Core. You, re- I, I always write it and rewrite it and then rewrite it and uh, and then go through it, reading it and double checking that I don't trip over any words. And it seems to be fine until I do it for real and then I struggle over certain stupid words and you just go, oh, for fuck's sake. Oh, and it's hard today because it's half term, which means people are bored. So they're walking along the canal because they've got nothing better to do because it's a nice day today. And they're like, oh, let's go and walk along the canal and let's talk loudly as we pass past Michael's boat. Bastards, utter bastards. <sighs> Coot was having a bit of a rant outside as well. And when he started kicking off, a, a, a Canadian goose started kicking off as well, going, eh, eh, eh. Anyway, that's that done. Oh, hope you're all well. Um, it's extra mile, unscripted, unedited, blah, blah, blah. If you don't like waffle, you probably won't like this, but we do a quiz very shortly. Uh, and um, I fill you in on some extra details coming in, uh, in, in in the case that may not have made it into the episode. Of course, as mentioned before, if you like extra mile, have a listen to uh, on Patreon. I do it. I think it's like weekly. So on the Saturday after you listen to the episode and you see you've, you've got all the all the lovely photos that I do and the videos and the the script that goes with it after that you have an extra mile which is me um walking along and telling you about what i've just edited and all the little secret stuff that's in the episode or as i did last week i was doing it while i was moving the boat so there we go it's all good fun shall i do myself a tea i made myself a herbal tea but i barely drank it Mm. let me do that and i'll take off your little hood as well your little hat there we go there you go you can hear me better now you'll probably hear coot having a little rant outside like a little bastard that he is little annoying little bastard Ugh. anyway uh tea on what should i do should i do a tea i mean it's it's irrelevant i'm probably not going to drink it i'll probably it'll it'll be too hot it'll have cooled down enough by the time i finish um by the time i finish i will go off to starbucks um again uh, to get my coffee and start editing, I do I do the preliminary edit because it takes it takes probably about six or seven hours to just clean up the audio, go through, clean up all the all the audio, get rid of the mistakes, clean it up, get the rhythm right. So that takes about six or seven hours, and then it takes about another two days to edit the episode. So I I found that I can do the initial edit of just cleaning up the order I can, I can do it in a coffee shop everything else i need peace and quiet oh dear what else right while this is brewing uh what else is happening valentine's day was yesterday as today is the 15th of february 
I don't know. I think you're way in the future, aren't you? Yeah. Uh, so it was all good. All good. Didn't get anything from Eva. I, I asked where was my present uh, in a kind of a, a discreet way, not looking her in the eye because you're not allowed to look Eva in the eye. And she said, being my loyal slave is your present. And I was like, I agree. I agree. I agree. Thank you, Eva. Sorry, Eva. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry. Sorry. Thank you. Um, what else is going on? Um, a little sorry to uh, any any of my patrons. Uh, I've messaged most of you about this. Uh, anyone who's based in the US. Um, because of the cyber attack on the Royal Mail in early January, they're still trying to sort that out. Uh, so I've got all your stuff here. They won't accept parcels yet. Uh, so they're still stuck here and, and so yeah sorry about that hopefully they will be released into the wide world soon uh thank you to uh new patron supporters thank you to uh terry M- terry Fremantle. thank you terry josh govan and Cece. so thank you terry thank you josh thank you Cefi. Cefi. <sighs> my ability to talk has gone what else is going on Ooh, this week i i, I start i treat myself to some earbuds because even though I object to... I've got a Samsung phone, and even though I object to the fact that they've taken out the mini jacks where you could plug in your earphones before, and now it's like, no, you've got to have a USB-C, which are horrible, because they, they, they're not... The connection's not particularly good. Uh, I objected to it, but... Um, uh, as a birthday treat to myself, which is this weekend, although by the time you hear this, it'll be like two two weeks in the past, I treat myself to some uh, wireless earbuds. Uh, they're very good, actually. The, the, the duration on them is not good, but uh, it was nice just to walk along the street, not to have my phone cutting out every six seconds. Uh, I can use them to make calls as well, and uh, actually the, the quality was quite good. So I'm quite enjoying that. And the other night I went out with my mate and got very pissed and we had what's called a brother's kebab, which is uh, uh, enough kebabs for five people. And we ate them all that night at about 2 a.m. Oh my God, it hurt. I was having kebab hurts when, you, when your body really hurts from all the meat. And in fact, in the morning, I, uh, I was struggling to swallow because I think there were so many big pieces of meat in there oh lovely lovely meat uh yeah i'm struggling so uh there we go cup of tea i'm not gonna have a cake uh i've got one there i've got a nice little um why oh i can't see what you are you a bake or tart bake or tart of course but i'm saving it for tonight to have with my dinner while i make a big bowl of custard and i drop in the bake or tart into that and it's very nice Oh, right. Uh, oh, just put a nice big cushion behind me. That's quite nice. Um, let's do the quiz questions, then we'll dive into some extra stuff in this episode. Uh, so, lots of waffle. Right, quiz questions. There's 10. Don't forget, I haven't edited the episode yet, so I might balls them up. Uh, but I don't edit it, edit Murder Mile, uh, Murder Mile uh, Extra Mile anyway. That's the whole point. Right. See, if I did, that would be shit. And you'd, I'd, I'd take that out. But I haven't took take that out. I've left it in. So there we go. Um, questions one. Uh, what? I write these questions at the last minute and sometimes they don't make sense. Question number one. In what county was James possibly born in? So what county was James, oh, let's just say born in, as near as, as near as I think we've got it narrowed down to. In what county was James born in? 
if you've answered the other question what you what can do was he pop- possibly born in i'll give you uh you can have that as a uh you can have a point for that if you got it right question number two what was the name of james's sister question number three what was the name of the hotel where james was initially a lodger question number four which city did james the question number four which city did donald come from and return to question number five what company did james work for question number six which police court did marie hand in the summons for james hall question number seven what was the name of james's friend who he met for a drink on the night of the murder question number eight what age was james question number nine what prison did james previously serve time and question number 10 at what pub was james arrested oh that's the the one that i practiced at the end and i ballsed it up trying to say the bloody words sometimes sometimes having a bit of a a stutter it's 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 tipping words it's when you you're i I find when it's too many t's together although having done murder my five years now in the old days i used to stumble over everything now i'm almost not faultless but i'm i'm getting good it used to be three hours to record and now i've got it down to about the first bit down to about 50 minutes which is not bad for given the first part is 30 minutes long that's not bad well let's dive into some extra stuff about uh to go with the episode uh james allen hall uh his description we'll probably dive into this one the later episodes five foot ten fresh complexion ruddy cheeked dark brown hair which is wavy with the side parting clean shaven slim build on the day of the murder he was wearing a dark blue suit striped trousers a trilby hat with a feather in it in the band uh a blue double-breasted overcoat black shoes uh the police would later uh get access to his clothes and they would check them um we'll dive into that later on we don't really know much about his past we know he was educated we know he could read and write because he became a clerk Uh, unfortunately even in the police files and in the court records they didn't have in there his um his criminal record so i was having to piece that together by bits and pieces that i kind of tracked down so we know that he was charged uh with violent conduct against his wife we know that he was being hunted down for uh, the criminal act of embezzlement while at the southgate burial board Uh, he was embezzled for taking monies from the bereaved what a nasty piece of shit uh uh, he falsified and uh, mutilated the accounts to hide the crime he was previously a clerk there his dad was actually i think his dad was deputy deputy chief clerk his dad died uh within a month maybe two months he defrauded them of 59 pounds which is uh pounds today uh and then he fled he see there seems to be his thing he he wants money he overspends he steals he flees he doesn't seem to care about anyone else uh let's dive into other details we don't need that um um his friends we kind of i, I won't mention the name of his friend because that is one of the quiz questions well done michael um 
I, d- I did a whole history of kind of he- him and his friends and where we met. Um, they used to hang out at the Griffin Pub on Villiers Street, which is by Charing Cross Station. The ho- the Salisbury, which is, I believe is on St Martin's Lane. Uh, in- interesting, that's where Dennis Nielsen used to pick up some men as well. Um, these are kind of all pubs that were kind of known to be kind of homosexual hangouts. His friends uh, all seem to work in the hat department at Austin Reed on Regent Street. Um they were all young lads inverted commas it says uh, uh what else have we got what else have we got it's a the reason for this episode is you're probably thinking why why am i diving into james hall as a suspect when he was only the police's suspect but there was circumstantial evidence against him um and maybe you know maybe he was the Soho Strangler. Maybe he was the most likely suspect in the murder of Jean-Marie Cotton. Maybe he did murder Jean-Marie Cotton. Uh, we don't know. These are all things that we don't know. But this is this is kind of a really key episode for everything that we're going to confront later on. So everything that you've heard so far is all building up forwards and forwards and forwards to what comes next. So everything leads to further points. There's a normally in in kind of the cases i do like with the blackout ripper say like with 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 reg christie we know it was reg and therefore i'm introducing just the victims and we're following his journey and their journey with the blackout ripper we don't know it's him yet but i'm introducing you to him slowly and then we learn all about him whereas this case is entirely different this is a series of murders a series of murders and mysteries combined and there's a lot to cover there's a lot so there's it's it's not it's not clear there's not a linear route we're having to jump around a little bit to kind of cover all the bases because trust me if if you think if you're confused um and your brain is fizzing having listened to this episode and thinking hang on maybe he did do that maybe that happened maybe because there's a lot still to consider there's a lot that we still don't know just wait until we get even further i'm going to grab my tea because a bell end in a big blue wide beam is going past too fast and my boat is probably going to bang against the side and the tea is probably going to spill everywhere utter bellend they're, they're meant to be see he's, he's standing there uh on his boat having a smile waved at me got, yep there we go got his phone out doesn't give a flying fuck doesn't realize that he should be on what we call tick over which is kind of the lowest speed utter bellend utter bellend uh james ross his lover full name james alistair ross 18 years old Uh, as mentioned he applied for a job as an intern um so they'd only really known each other not actually that long before uh he started he asked him to go out on a date with him um whether donald was gay or not we don't seem to we don't know he did say to the police i was not corrupted until i went to london and met hall he's always implying that he was not gay uh interestingly he never accuses uh james hall of assault but therefore if he would have charged uh accused hall of assault that probably would have led to charges against donald as well for being gay because don't forget being gay is illegal in that era so it makes everything very complicated um let's not go into too much about the uh the soldier we don't really know a lot about the soldier all we know is uh the soldier that they, they had sex with in the bed we know that he was wearing a kilt um we know that he had served 30 days detention for an offense with two boys um 
we know that on one occasion Donald came back to the flat the the soldier had been in there with him and Hall was cleaning up a mess on the bed uh, and he told he told me that the soldier had been sick uh, I think I don't think we'll go into too much more about that I think that's kind of pretty much done um, as mentioned in the in the previous episode we mentioned that um, Hall had moved out on the 30th of January 1936 and that uh, Dorothy had moved in the same day um, because the dates because the dates with a lot of this the dates are really confusing because people say different dates so because there's like a nine day gap there because it's not really important but i feel it should be covered uh, on the last one i put james's version which is the 30th in this one i put the other version which is that it was around the 8th of february it makes no difference really but it's just nice to get the details right um throwing that big uh bucket of shit over the bed um they had a bathroom there um the bath had uh, in the bathroom was a bath and they each had a washstand in their bedrooms inside the flat but there was no working toilet so out back was a cesspit where all the kind of the waste would go into uh, so underneath marie's bed she had kind of a nice ceramic bedpan this is back in the era when if you wanted to have a shit uh, you'd use a bedpan if you were in bed or you had a bucket in the corner of the room for her um her lodgers uh there was like a, a toilet bucket a pail in the corner and what they do was they'd, they'd tip it into the uh waste uh cesspit outback little detail here the exact waste pit outback the cesspit is the one that um caused the 1856 cholera outbreak which killed uh, a sixth of soho's population um it was a cesspit but it was uh, next to it was the water point and they kind of merged together the kind of the systems were kind of merging so people were kind of tipping their shit into there and then other people were using the water pump to get their water out and uh, that killed a sixth of soho's population there you go little detail there um as we can see with the the kind of build-up to the murder um james could have just paid he could have just apologized he could have joe she didn't marie didn't want to argue about this she didn't want to fight she didn't want to have to go to court she just wanted money because she couldn't use the mattress anymore she had to buy a new one which was the new one that uh dorothy would end up using and the other one was stuck outside she could clean it but it was she said it was disgusting this is back in the days we've got the nice wipe clean ones now back then that would be the kind of the horsehair ones and when you get those wet they get wet and they stay wet so um it's it's not like you could you could just take it to the dry cleaners as we would probably do now um da, 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 da. um interestingly when james and donald left the flat they went to go and live with uh donald's sister who uh we mentioned in the episode um saturday the 22nd of february um donald's sister had already complained about the bed in uh in in their house being damaged as well uh hall had actually given her 25 shillings to cover the damage um uh he said it was an accident um donald would say uh, the mattress was damaged as a result of hall urinating in the bed he seems to have a problem that boy um uh as mentioned i mentioned in the episode that kind of uh, uh donald's sister put her foot down and she um she told she kind of split them up um that was true 
But the other way of looking at it as well was that um, Donald needed an operation on his tonsils and his adenoids. Uh, there was numerous statements taken, but that was kind of Donald's excuse saying I, that's why he left home. Um, he left and uh, headed back home. Um, I had fish sticks and quavers for uh, uh, lunch today and they're all coming burping back um do we need to go into the letters the letters i kind of have covered everything i need to in the letters quite often it's really hard because there were letters written and a lot of the ones that were written to uh james james hall he destroyed but uh, a lot of the ones that came to from james to marie um were kept and it was actually dorothy the neighbor who kept them she kind of felt that things were a little bit weird that there was a lot going on that she didn't like so she decided to keep hold of them which was great in a way because that came kind of invaluable evidence also quite often james would say oh i'll come like he'll send her a letter to marie saying oh, okay i'll come to your place and we'll come and chat about this and i will uh we'll meet at this time blah 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 but she would she would wait for him he wouldn't turn up then she would find a note uh by the gas pipe where she left a note for mr cohen and he would say oh i'm sorry i called but you you were out i'll try another day so um it seems to be very much he, he seems to be trying to act like he's trying to get it resolved resolved but he's not um as mentioned the amount of money that she was asking for was about 220 pounds today so not not a massive amount really but don't forget people didn't earn as much back then so um um she was earning i think we do we say that she was she was earning i think it was about four or five pounds a week so do you know it's as a comparison then it kind of you can see that you can, what's that that's a that's a decent whack of money so you can see why he would be reluctant to do that but also you'd think that he would be more reluctant to not want to go to court you'd think he'd turn around to her and go okay look how about i pay you like 10 shillings a week from this point onwards um letters what else do we need to say about this what else do we need to say uh i'm always always conscious not to ruin the um the competition competition it's not a competition is it it's um a thingy a doodah oh the quiz my brain is fried it really is um the yeah this is see this is weird um I, I i i've tried to make everything really nice and simple for you at the end so you don't get confused about kind of who did what and when but on the day of the murder james said that he was at work from nine until five and his work colleagues his boss uh william smith the managing director and there's uh, another guy as well he's in there somewhere um mr murray he said yes they were yes he was in there for the whole day and then a couple of days passed and then um the police interviewed them again because this is what the police do they interview you multiple times to work out where because if things are right you're going to get them right every time but if if things are, are not right and you haven't cemented them in your brain you're going to make mistakes and that's why they interview you multiple times um but then william smith said uh oh no he arrived at about 10 15 a.m and i found hall in the office he complained of not feeling well and said he had to go and see a solicitors in connection with bankruptcy proceedings now initially he said this had happened uh on the friday 
but later on he would say it actually happened on the Thursday. Now Hall also said different things as well. He initially said he was at work all day and then he changed it saying that he had left partway through the Thursday as well. So it's the problem is because he did, no one really saw him on the day of the murder and the kind of the day after the murder everything's a bit sketchy because he's he's clearly running around and he's clearly falsifying checks so he's trying to hide his details then as well so it it makes it really difficult to kind of work out where he is and what's going on and who's doing what and uh, even mr murray said that he left at 9 30 a.m uh, on the day of the murder um uh, what was this bit so he initially said it was a friday then he said it was thursday so he said he left at 9 30 a.m um hall said he wasn't feeling well and needed to see a firm of solicitors he called his employer at 1 p.m saying he was due in bankruptcy court and would be in later which was a lie uh then he called again at 4 p.m and said he wasn't feeling well um so the, so as these are the only people who can confirm where he was at what time because they can't remember what day it happened because they weren't interviewed immediately afterwards if you think about it james hall wasn't a suspect until much later they were all they were looking at carlo they were looking at remo they were looking at uh, dorothy they were looking at bram they were looking at everyone involved in kind of that area. James and that issue didn't crop up for a couple of days. And so it was it was about a week to two weeks before the police were able to find the people he James worked for and get these details. But by that point, they were like, well, you know, you, you're kind of thinking, what day did it happen? But then all of a sudden, after you've met with the police and they've sat you down, you go, oh, I wonder if it was the day of the murder instead. And suddenly your brain starts going it must be the day of the murder i must have got it wrong we we'll see a lot more of this in the next episodes as well because there's a there's a lot more the next few episodes are really more about how when the people know that there is a series of murders going on they tend to get their details from the press as that's where everyone gets their details from and even people who are witnesses they start seeing things that never really happened or then they start misremembering things because they read it in the press and they think well that must be the facts but it's not it's like you're an eyewitness you should really trust your instincts even though eyewitnesses are only about 30 percent accurate um that night uh james met his friend night of the murder 6 40 p.m ish according to them um he was uh at the angel and crown on warwick street which is still there today where he met his chums from austin reed um he stayed there until about 7 20 p.m then went to piccadilly circus and left them uh he then said he went to the news picture house uh the monsignor which is just off piccadilly uh, and then went to the lion's cornhouse tea room all of these he said um he did but we can't really verify who he was with he seems to have hung out with a lot of unnamed people um but if the death timings are correct it's likely that if he did murder marie that he did it before he went to visit his friend friends at 640 in uh the angel and crown pub on warwick street it's likely she was already dead by that point it's likely it probably happened nearer 5 36 that kind of that kind of time um uh 7 p.m uh, yeah he went to the lion's corner's tea room i think it's the coventry street for some dinner he said then he went to the griffin on villiers street between eight and nine and then went to the uh, the bunch of grapes with a man who didn't know the name of he then returned 
uh, to a boarding house at 36 Waterloo Road. I kind of said in the story back to Trafalgar, back to uh, one of his other lodgings, but uh, I just didn't want to confuse the situation. I was going, because it's confusing. He kind of, he goes to Waterloo Road, but he's actually staying elsewhere. It's, yeah, it's all, it is what it is. Uh, what else we got? Let's not go too much into stealing the checks, four checks in total. He stole uh, roughly £13, which is about £1,100 today. Um, the only reason it was found out was the uh, managing director of the company got a call on his home phone from the uh, manager at Lloyd's Bank. Um, he said it was, uh, he said that they received some checks that they were kind of dubious about. Um, uh, they'd already kind of worked out that kind of James was uh, always in money troubles, uh, was a bit of a habitual liar. Um, and as soon as he got the call about, about the, you know, uh, checks being signed off, the, the signatures didn't look right. Um, they kind of knew pretty much what was going on. Um, all of the letters uh, from Dorothy Neary were handed straight to the police, so that kind of became part of the investigation. Um, on the 20th of April 1932, even though he wasn't there, the police turned up at um, James's lodging, room 15, at Unnamed Place, uh, which was his lodging, although I just fucked it up a couple of minutes ago. They said, I found a, jack a jacket of a blue suit hanging in the wardrobe and a letter headed for Lexington Street, Golden Square. They, they, they say it's Golden Square. It's not really Golden Square. Um, with a lot of these addresses, to make it sound more more exciting, if you some addresses there will say uh, 26 Poland Street, Oxford Street. And what they mean is 26 Poland Street near Oxford Street, because Oxford Street sounds posher. Uh, Golden Square, it's, it's two streets away, but people like that. A uh, letter was signed by Mrs. J. Lanza. Uh, um, what else is there? It was real, real pig trying to piece together all the letters, because they're not in the files, and we're having to rely on witness statements of, of what people saw and what was said. So it took a lot of cross correlating all this data to try and piece this all together because it's not as clear as it should be um 22nd of april uh because they wanted to hunt down james they put his photo and his description um in the police gazette they also put up posters in and around soho to try and find him um so lots of people saw it but he would state that even though he was in the area he never saw them which is weird because it was in the papers uh he did actually say to a friend Oh, I. Uh, what was it he said? I've got it written somewhere. He said well, one of his friends down the pub a couple of days later. He, he said about the lady who was murdered in Soho, and he, he said like, "Oh yeah, I used to live in the room next door to her." But unfortunately, there really wasn't enough evidence against him. They had his clothing. Uh, there was no blood found on the clothing. But then again, the blood amount was small. It was mostly focused around her nose. Someone had attempted to mop it up. Uh, but none, none was on the door, even though the press said it was on the door. Uh, it wasn't. Um, and it didn't seem to have been tracked anywhere else. So, you know, it's unlikely that he would have... Even, even the Dr. Davidson, who examined the clothes at the police laboratory, said it was unlikely that they would find blood on there anyway. Uh, they had letters between the two of them, but that was inconclusive. No witnesses saw him in and around Lexington Street, in and around the time of the murder. He made no confession. He didn't steal anything. Uh, he didn't have anything relating to the murder in his possession. Uh, 
Um, he admitted that he'd purchased the Daily Telegraph and also the, an evening paper every day, but he was unaware of the case or that Marie had been murdered. Uh, he also states that he did not see his name or photo on the street posts or outside police stations, even though he discussed it with his pals. Seventeenth uh, of April, he met up with his pals at the Crown on Warwick Street, and they discussed the murder. He said they said James Hall said, "I happen to know the flat next door." He was jokingly asked if he did it, and he barked, "Don't be blo- so bloody silly." After this subject, it was dropped. Although. As we mentioned before, you really can't trust people's uh, witness statements. Everyone has a reason for saying things. Everyone has a reason. Sometimes they just want to be helpful, and sometimes helpful can't isn't always helpful. Um, as mentioned in the episode, uh, fingerprints uh, were found in the kitchen and the bedroom. They all turned out to be Remo's, Carlo's, uh, Maria's, Marie's. I keep calling her Maria, Marie's, um, and one other. But that turned out to be the first constable who arrived on the scene. Here's what on the door, as you expect, he's trying to get his way in. Um, police said there was a likelihood that she opened the door to her killer as she was expecting him. But we have no evidence that she was expecting him at that time. Although we do know that she was expecting Mr. Cohen. <sighs> Oh, my, even my head is hurting with this case it's, it's really difficult and it's it's about to get even harder uh the trial for fraud 23rd of may 1936 uh as mentioned he was given 10 months hard labor uh for embezzlement uh, after his crimes he was released uh 24th of april 1937 uh um Uh, 24th of October 1939 at Bow Street he was sentenced to 28 days hard labour for gross indecency I may have mentioned this in the episode or I may have made a note to myself to remove it because it may not be important Um, owing to these crimes his wife was able to track him down she succeeded in getting some solicitors uh, to get to him in prison where he was unable to run Uh, they were divorced November 1939 um uh, solicitors gave him the divorce papers while he was serving in wandsworth prison um he was released from wandsworth prison uh, i tracked him down to the goat and compass pub on euston road where he was a barman um and uh the paxton's head which is not too far over in knightsbridge where he worked for about five weeks so he seems to be a bit on and off at that point um Apart from that, that seems to be pretty much it. I think that's it. Yeah. I don't want to do any more because we've still got six more episodes to go and there's a lot to cover. And it just, there's nothing worse than ruining something just to fill a, a bit of space in extra mile. So let's, besides, it's two o'clock and I'm going to go to Costa Coffee uh, and have my coffee and do some editing. Oh, God, my head hurts. right let's check i'm still recording yeah and that yawn looked huge on the waveform on my editor there we go question number one in what country was james country in what county was james possibly born let's just say what county was he born it was norfolk although if he said yorkshire that's fine because they thought he was possibly born there it's likely he was born in norfolk question number two what was the name of james's sister it was dora Although I'm basing this on the fact that I found him, his 
birth details and census in Norfolk. So uh, there you go. Question number three. What was the name of the hotel where James was a lodger? I balls this one up, so you should have got this one for free. It was the Trafalgar, uh, which is also the same uh, hotel. It's just off uh, Trafalgar Square, obviously. And it's the same pub where James Forbes McCallan, uh, where he stayed the night before he robbed... Um, I think it's the Coach and Horses just off Covent Garden where he shot the barman, Maurice Shulman. Uh, question number four. Which city did Donald come from and return to? It was Edinburgh. Or if you're American, Edinburgh. Uh, question number five. What company did James work at? It was Denard Ma Manufacturing. Question number six. At what police court did Marie hand in the summons for James Hall? It was Great Marlborough Street Police Court. <sighs> Which is the same uh, court as where Fifi, French Fifi received her last conviction. Question number seven. What was the name of James's friend who we met for a drink on the night of the murder? It was Leonard Thays. Question number eight. What age was James? He was 28. Question number nine. What prison did James previously serve time at? It was Wandsworth Prison, where the Blackout Ripper was executed. And question number 10. At what pub was James arrested? This was the... Th the Sutherland Public House on Vigo Street. The Sutherland Public House. I have to say it like that. Well, otherwise, it won't come out. There we go. That's me done. Oh, I'm knackered now. Uh, I might treat myself to. I might treat myself to a twirl. Mm. Anyway, that's me done. Hope you enjoyed that. That was part four. Next week, uh, as mentioned at the end, we dive into a new murder, a new Soho Strangler murder, uh, which is three weeks later and a few streets across, and it takes us back to Old Compton Street. So, lots to... Oh, God, my head is hurting. So, there we go. Um, have yourself a good week, folks. Uh, stay safe and be good, and thank you for listening to the show. Lots of love. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.